Art of the Cut is brought to you by FilmTools.com, your one-stop shop for production and post-production gear. Be sure to listen for an exclusive site-wide offer later in the show. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking with the core editing team of the Amazon TV series Bosch, which just finished its sixth season. Joining me in the conversation are Jackie Tabaran, Kevin Casey, and my longtime friend Steve Cohen, ACE. Steve was one of my first internet mentors in the early days of Avid. His book, Avid Agility, contains a lot of the wisdom he imparted to me back in the early 90s, and of course, it's been updated since then. Steve's filmography includes feature films Rambling Rose, Lost in Yonkers, Angie, Blood and Wine, and 15 Minutes. Also, TV, including Wayward Pines and The Bridge. He's been very involved with the digital transition, working closely with Avid Technology, helping to start the editing program at the AFI, and co-founding the Editors Guild magazine. Jackie's filmography includes editing China Beach, 105 episodes of ER, Detroit 187, The Good Wife, and Betrayal. Kevin's filmography includes 30-something, Sisters, ER, Southland, Detroit 187, Boss, and The Bridge. His work at ER earned him five Emmy nominations and one win. How do you collaborate? Do you do any collaboration as, as a group of editors? Obviously, you're probably editing your own specific episode, but how are you working together as a group? Kevin Casey responds. We're always, um, hey, Jackie, come in and take a look at this. So Jackie says, Kevin, can you look at this? Uh, uh, we'll go to Steve and say, what do you think? It's more just individual, one thing at a time type stuff. I, I will sometimes go, obviously go and say, what what happened if I didn't uh, hadn't seen what he had been working on? Say I was the next episode, I might collaborate in that way, saying, I don't know this person. You know, it's a new character to my episode. We just look at individual pieces or scenes sometimes just for if we're having a, a stuck place, you know. The voice of Steve Cohen. I think we actually collaborate more than we realize and we do it sort of unconsciously and subtly. We are all friends and we like each other and we've been hanging out for a while now. And I think we just know how we think. You know, we watch each other's episodes. You have to. You can't really do it if you don't watch what came before and what's coming after. So even though you're doing every third show, you have to see everything. You know, you've read the script, but that isn't enough. You want to see the show as soon as possible. And I think that we all play off of each other. I think some of it's unconscious. Some of it's come into my room and help me. Some of it's, I want you to look at this. Do you think there's anything wrong with this? And, you know, we're another pair of eyes for each other's work. Also, I think on some deeper level, we all kind of are playing in the same sandbox and we know it. The voice of Jackie Tabaran. Yeah, we work through the stories. <clears throat> we talk about everything a lot, actually, because we eat lunch together and we're always talking about the scenes. And sometimes a character may appear in episode one and not again until episode five. And so we track all of that. Exactly. You know, continually. And, and we do. We talk about the show a lot. You can't help but talk about the show a lot. It's your life for six months. Plus, we do have the writers right there on site. And if we have a big question about where something's going, because oftentimes we don't know where something is going. That's true. Sure. 
you've got to rely on the showrunner for that, right? Kind of subtext you need to put into something. Right. And there have been moments when they haven't wanted us to know a specific thing until, yeah. you know, it was approaching that time to reveal it. Because yes. that's that's part of the the storytelling of Bosch is that a little piece of information is revealed and then another piece. The stories are tricky. There's a lot going on and there's different characters influencing each other and all kinds of pieces of evidence that are coming together. And that's and why we run in and say, can I see that scene? Did she say this? Yes. Yeah, you know, right, right. because there yeah. are so many little details dropped here and there and you want to track exactly where that was, that piece of information was revealed. So. You want to track the emotional state of the characters to say, oh, he, this happened in the last episode, which I didn't cut. And this is his reaction. It's only a day later. But it's three weeks later in editing time. I do something that these two guys sometimes roll their eyes. But uh, I know Steve and Jackie, the, the second a script comes out, I mean, first draft, boom, they're reading it. And they say, well, did you read the script? Uh, show seven? I said, no, no, I'm on show four. I don't care what happens in show seven. I, wanna, I, I like to take it as, it as it falls in front of me. I don't want to know too much, quite frankly up ahead so we differ in that way i yeah, usually we're, I, I usually like to read the script that's going to stage you know that they're going to shoot that's the one i want to read so i don't say hmm what happened to that where did that go with you know but that's just me that's the way i like to do it so to take it more as an audience would i like to cut it as it comes to me hopefully i cut it properly that it's going to foreshadow something or whatever but uh the way our show is done that you know you're gonna you're gonna do it right because it's really shot well and it's usually directed quite well. and uh, But I just don't really care about three episodes down the line when I'm on uh, uh, on my own, you know. Steve and I always want to know what happens next. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we want to we know everything. But, you know, I used to say, and I, I feel this very strongly, is that the most important thing in the cutting room is, is having the perspective of the audience. And none of us really have that. You can't have that after... You know, your first read is your first read. Your first look is your first look. And after that, you don't have that kind of perspective. And Although you gain a little bit when uh, several months have gone by. And if you go back and watch episode one through four or five, perhaps, mm -hmm. then you've got it back to a certain degree. But you're right. Once you know something, you that audience perspective yeah. is gone. Yeah, yeah. yeah It could color your editing, right? That you know, oh my God gosh, this guy is going to, in episode seven, he's going to betray this other guy. And then, so in episode four now, maybe you'd hold on some statement or the reaction to a statement a little longer because you know it's a lie. Well, sometimes both ways. I mean, I, I've done it. You just cut it not knowing what's going to happen. You cut it the way you think. And then down the line, when you do find out what's happened, you think, oh, you know, maybe I should re-examine that a little bit. Now, maybe if I knew beforehand, though, I might have overdone it or something the fear I, is that I, you overdo it yeah so i like to not know and then if uh, then i know you know looking back at the show before it's finished oh wait a minute now that now that i see that i really should hold on that i should i should hit that a little harder for me most of it i just try to do it sort of instinctually anyway usually it works if it doesn't that's the great thing about editing you can fix it you know so and that's the beauty of our show we we're able to go back into our shows and polish if yeah. we need to cuz we don't lock until usually <laughs> november sometime in november some of the shows we start locking right 
Is that uh, when yeah, we do it or the end of October? No, no, it's a while. We, because because um, everything no drops at once, there's no yeah. air date. We can, we can hold off. We have to finish shows for sound. It's not like we can hold off on everything, but you can hold off more than you would, say, on a network show where you have to deliver week after week. Yeah, I find if it's on the schedule to deliver my cut to the director and I just go to Mark, Mark Douglas, who's our post-producer, I say, I don't think I can get this by Tuesday. And he, okay, how about Wednesday? <laughs> I mean, they don't have, we, I mean, you know, we try to stick to schedules, but we do have, we, we get some leniency um, at, at times, uh, which makes it, for me, I mean, I like that. You know, it's not tight, tight schedules that make us crazy. Since the shows kind of deliver all at the same time, are you able to seed stuff back into earlier episodes or understand how a flashback is going to play in because you know what's, what's going to happen three episodes down the line? Yeah, I think that's, that's part of it. Is we, yeah, we, we, can, we can have a, a bird's eye perspective and see an arc of several shows before we have to lock them. Well, of course, also once the producers get in with us, and, you know, they're going to know sometimes that's when they say, well, no, that's, this is going to happen or that's going to happen which for the guys that have read the scripts in advance, they don't look stupid like I do, but that's, <laughs> that's what happens. Well, <laughs> Steve, I can, also I can, what you're, I can what you're looking stupid. It's okay. <laughs> Just look at me now, you know? <laughs> well, last year, the writers even changed uh, the identity of someone that killed someone else. Cause that affected me in the way that I cut this one character because originally it was going to have been him that, that killed this person, but it ended up being someone else. Because I thought with him being angry, too angry, it would tip the story. But because they changed it, 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 it worked out. I think that's also a positive for us that we don't have to lock the shows too quickly. That these things can happen. You know, sometimes they've already, it's gone too far and then it's going to cost a lot of money. But by holding off, the dubs on these shows so we can kind of go back in and not cause too much trouble, which is a nice thing. One of the things that I've talked to, uh, or I, I've actually heard other people discuss is, oh, how do you maintain a cohesive style when you have multiple editors? But the other thought is people are always saying that the footage speaks to you, right? That you know, if it's the same directors and the same writing style and the same performances, the same actors performing the same characters, that plays a lot into how you're cutting it and the style of the edit, correct? I think all three of us, though, have subtly different styles. I can often look at a show, although, you know, you know who's cut it, but if, if you didn't know, I, I think I could tell whether Steve had cut some things or, or Jackie had cut the scene because we all do it slightly differently. And I think that the fact that they don't make us change it, they don't want us to be cookie cutter, you know, that's interesting. Do you think there's a tell, like a, like a poker player where you you know he... Uh... Steve has a tell. He post-laps and pre-laps everything. He keeps Jack, the story... Jackie has his, picked that up from me, so I, it's his, not as good uh, of a tell anymore. Yeah, he, he's got the story moving forward continually. So I, I kind of stole that, so I use it a lot now too, but not always. And I like to let shots play to an uncomfortable level because I think the actors are really holding it. And I think I do that more than these two do. It's so funny that you mentioned that tell about pre-lapping and post-lapping because I watched an episode that I know Steve cut. 
And, and he does it, right? One of my questions was <laughs> about pre-lapping and post-lapping, basically because, as you said, there's the a show aesthetic of letting things play, letting holding on things. And there was definitely a scene early. This is scene 404, or episode 404, season four, episode four. And there's a great early conversation between uh, two detectives at Bosch's house. And it really does play nice and each shot is held a beautiful length of time. There's not a lot of overlap. There's not a lot of pre-lapping. The, the pace of the, of the conversation is slow as you would think it would, right? It's you're, you're letting the scene and the actor's performance tell you what the pace is. Later on, all the detectives are in kind of the, the pit area having a conversation that is very rapid fire and everything is pre-lapped. I watched pre-lap after pre-lap after pre-lap, one down the line. Is that a way to pace up a scene to make it seem faster? Yeah, sure. It's a way to make it seem faster. Of course it is. Yeah. And it's a way to make the cuts be invisible. And it's a way to make, particularly for an ensemble, it's a way to bring everybody together and make it seem like they're all sort of organically connected. You know, we don't want to think he talks, he talks, he talks too obviously, particularly if it's a group scene. Because people overlap naturally all the time. So oftentimes uh, we all pull people up and overlap them on top of someone anyway. You know, if it's not shot that way, but sometimes it is shot that way, especially a, a, a really intense argument. Yeah, yes, I, exactly. I, have, I have found with those types of scenes that when you have a bunch of people and the audience will lose track of where they all are. So you want uh, the slight overlap is going to just pull you f- to that direction. Sometimes there'll be a look from one of the actors when you when he first hears that overlap, he'll throw a little look and then, you know, the geography of it. We don't shoot a lot of close ups on our show. So you don't usually lose track of those things. But I find when you have a lot of close-ups that it it helps to uh, throw you to where that person is sitting or standing or whatever. And it doesn't become a ping-pong game. A slideshow. A slideshow, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, we rarely... But Steve, you're right. You have to... This is a matter of the scene. You know, a technique is appropriate to a particular scene and a particular rhythm and a particular emotional state of the actors. The scene you were talking about is very somber and thoughtful and i thought the performances were were great from both of them and you know you want to feature the performances as much as possible other other times you want to speed it up exactly what you said and change the rhythm so if you've got the audio basically as tight the pacing of the actual speaking cut as tight as you can get it you're trying to make it seem like rapid fire boom 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 pre-lapping and post-lapping adds to that speed correct is it more than if you just cut, you know, at when st- someone starts to speak. Well, but it also depends on what you're trying to do in terms of a particular cut. You know, sometimes you want a hard straight cut because that has the most energy and it's an important moment that has to be featured. And other times you just want to weave everything together. But yeah, it can make it seem more kinetic, sure. Yeah, it depends on the information in the scene too. What, what are you trying to get across? The scene with all the prelapse in it, I definitely got the sense that it was, it's supposed to be this rapid fire, like discussion. Everybody's kind of throwing in their d- opinions. It's not unlike our three close-ups, four close-ups here, you know, we're all <laughs> yes. talking at the same time. And you, you have to decide, well, what am I going to show? And uh, But it's about the rhythm. That's, for me, it's all about the rhythm of the scenes and, and 
whether you do much pre-lapping or, or, or less of it. Has anybody here noticed, Steve, I wonder if you've noticed this, Zoom will show you the featured speaker, right? So you can see everybody's face or else you can see the person who's talking. It's always pre-lapped. Huh. I didn't notice that. Yeah. Because they hear the voice first. Right. Wherever the loudest sound is coming from, it analyzes that and then it makes a, a picture cut. Is it pre-lapped <laughs> uh, with the visual too, with the little box around the frame? The box, yes. If you don't have it showing full screen, the box is what would be seen full screen. Right. So it is pre-lapped that way too, yeah. Interesting. How has your approach to a blank timeline changed over the years? Have you found a way that you always do and you've stuck to it or have you evolved as you've cut? Oh, that's a great question. Coming from film and then cutting digitally, <clears throat> on film, you, I did a lot more of finessing individual cuts before I would move on. With digital editing, you, I go through a scene pretty quickly and throw a lot of stuff in the timeline. I'm pretty sure I'm going to be in a certain place for a certain line. And then that, that line goes in the timeline without finessing any cut, the, the cut at all. The cut will be terrible. I, I know it's a terrible cut. And I go through the whole scene that way. So now I've got this completely roughed out thing that has a structure and that has the best performances that I could find and the best sizes, but none of the cuts work. And then I go back and refine the cuts. And that's something that I only felt comfortable doing on digital because if you did that on film, you'd have a million tiny little cuts that you'd have to fix and all these short trims and it would drive you insane. But digitally, that's a great freedom. So there's this almost like, you know, my analogy is to surfing. I basically want to surf the film. I want to be cutting as fast as I can, picking takes as fast as I can. Not to say that I would not look at all the material because I do, and I make very careful decisions, but I want to get a structure as quickly as I can and then go back. And once you have that structure, you can refine things. And that I could, you could never do that on film. I like to watch the dailies. I like to watch them all the way through. And then I formulate it. Somehow it just, I can see the cut in my head then. I can see the points that I really want to magnify. I can see what shots I want to be in for which part of the scene. And I'll put the scene together. Sometimes that formulation I have in my mind doesn't work. And I have to adjust it as I go. I love to watch all the dailies and then the outtakes too, because sometimes you find outtakes that are actually better than the printed takes for a certain section because they print a take for an overall performance. And you may find a line here and there that's better in the outtake. But that's what I normally do. And then if I have a huge action scene, I have to watch all the dailies several times to formulate what I'm going to do. And then I structure it and then I go back and watch them again because you may have three bins of dailies on a big action scene. Do you watch those dailies in shot order? Take one through take seven? Yes. Yeah, I do. The way my assistant sets them up, I just watch them the way that she has them set up. I mean, sometimes they'll skip around if there's something that I know they did because I, I heard uh, a rumor that they shot this great shot and I want to see it. That's generally what I do is watch everything first. And 
and it just well, yeah, kind of magically we, we formulates. Watch everything yeah. first. I've known editors who don't watch the dailies; they watch them as they're cutting. I've so, known that too, and I don't do that. And then I actually get up and walk around for like five minutes, and then you know think about it. And come back and start cutting. And when you're watching those dailies, are you watching them passively or are you actively making markers or? I take notes sometimes, but I, I can, re- I have an amazing memory for some things now, you know, because I've been doing this for so many years and I can just click on the take and know exactly where I am. I don't, it's a skill you just develop. I don't know how you do, but it's, it's you just do. So 10,000 hours. So I can just remember. Yeah. yeah. I, I kind of approach it, I think more like Steve than Jackie, but I, I don't have much experience in actual film editing with film. I kind of came in a little bit later. I only worked on a couple of things as an assistant on film, but I look at the dailies when I get a, a normal scene, I just watch them. I don't usually take notes unless I've got a whole bunch of takes. It's not usually overshot, so we don't usually have too many takes. After I've watched it, I, I, sometimes I see it in my head. Like Jackie says, I can see the whole thing, and I know exactly what I want to do. Other times I don't. And so then I'll just go to the beginning again, and I'll look at the first line or the first few lines of the scene in each take, and I pick the one I like, and I put it in. And then I get to the next line of dialogue. Even if I'm not going to make a cut, maybe I just take each line of dialogue and I look at all the takes and find out where the best performance of that is. And like Steve, I, I just pound it in. And then I go back and look at it and see where it doesn't work. Maybe it's the, it might be the best take, but I can't cut to that shot there. And so then I will start to finesse it and then it just it falls into place. So that's kind of how I approach it. Well, the truth is that the film tells you where to cut. That's always how it is. Wherever it's best in that area... Well, as I'm watching the dailies and I see something uh, that I really like, even if it's at the end of the scene, I'll edit that into the timeline first. That's where I want to be. So I sometimes actually cut the scenes not from beginning to end. I'll see the the point that I really want to make and that's going to go in. And then I say, how do I get to that piece? And I back it in. Not always, but this is sometimes I do that with scenes. I just don't really have a a, a go-to way of doing it. Yeah, it's different for every scene that you do. And then you're done at the end of the day and you think, how did I do that? (laughs) (laughs) I think that every day. But but, um, the one thing to be said, because I know a lot of young editors listen to your podcast, Steve, is that we all watch the dailies obsessively in one way or another. I watch them at least twice. I watch them once before I start to cut and then once as I cut. I sort of go through everything a second time. So it's at least twice. And I think that the process of watching dailies to a young editor might seem like a waste of time because you're not actually doing anything. And you're, you're you know, like, I want to get to it. I want to cut. Why am I not cutting? I must be wasting time. This is taking too long. And actually, and I think we've all said this in different ways, is that just the process of watching it is a process of creativity. Just seeing it, it's going into your consciousness, unconscious, and you're absorbing something and you're learning about the film and you're making choices and you're memorizing it. All that stuff is really important, even though you, it doesn't look like work product. I think it's a very common mistake for young editors that you start cutting too soon. Well, you start I start cutting before you have a point of view on the scene, for example. 
I think a problem, though, in today's world, in episodic television, not on Bosch, is the amount of dailies that people are getting these days. They're getting five, six, seven hours of dailies, and you can't watch seven hours of dailies before you start cutting. Or you're never going to get anything cut. Now, our show, the style of the show is not an overshot show. We don't shoot tons of angles, depending on the scene, but most scenes. And you can watch the dailies. Like Steve, I do it. When I finish the scene, I go back and I look at the dailies one more time, too, often to see if I've, you know, missed something. I know Jackie has worked on a couple of shows the last few years that, you know, she's getting uh, enormous amounts of film. It's a big problem because they're not giving you any more time at the end of the week to show it to somebody. So... I don't know how they do it. I really don't. Well, a lot of these young editors that are starting out are taking work home with them and they're going home to put their baby to bed and have dinner. And then they start working again till one in the morning or whatever. You know, it's it's incredibly unfair to get a start, to get get a a reputation and get a name out there. And luckily, we we don't have to do that. Yeah, they work on weekends for for nothing. Unfortunately, there's just a mathematical calculus to this that says if I have seven hours of dailies (laughs) and I want to watch it all, how do I cut it? You have to find a way to triage this. You have to find a way to reduce the watching time. I think a lot of editors in that case, they go to the last take because they figure, you know. Oh, the circle takes. Yeah, yeah, but they use the last one because there's just no way they can get through all that material. Yes. And that's, that's a common shortcut. And if they just, just yeah. use the last problem, thing, then they'll go it. back and look at the re- a bunch of stuff for one line. They'll go back into it mm-hmm. if they have a problem. But yeah, they can do that. I've, I've, I know people that do that too. I know people who've laughed at me for watching everything. Well, a so lot oh, of I never, shows, I never watch everything. A lot of shows <laughs> are now. A lot of shows are now shooting three cameras all day, every day. Yeah. yeah. Now that's going to give you at least six to seven hours a day, a day. Yes. Printed. If not, if not more. If not more. Yeah. Because uh, I worked on The Good Wife the first season, and one day I got seven or eight hours of dailies, and Scott Vickery got 10. It was courtroom <laughs> days. And yes. that was my first experience with getting that much film. I used to I get, almost, I, I got her calls uh, three times a week at home. Kevin and Jackie have, have worked together for years. Um, so they're they're kind of like old pals. Whereas I'm, you're the new I was pal. On, I was on Bosch a little bit before they were, but they're but they're, you're they're you're the new guy, guy, even though you were first. Yeah, <laughs> I'm the new guy to this. Well, Jack, Jackie, and I, Jackie and I go back. We worked on ER together for twelve and thirteen years. She was one more year than me. So I, we, thought, it was, I thought I worked there fourteen no, years. Well, you did, but I mean together. Uh, you know. Oh, oh. Yeah, I did thirteen. She did fourteen of out of fifteen. <laughs> so we have been around a long time together and have been looking at each other's film and have been screaming at each other and hating each other and loving each other. And, uh, and, and then, then I saw Steve Cohen. I said, isn't he the guy that wrote the books? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, just, I, I have known of Steve for many years, but it was uh, it's it's it, it's interesting when because Jackie and I came on at the exact same time, which is a. A pretty funny story in its own right. <laughs> no, we, Steve is Steve is definitely the poobah on Bosch. He definitely <laughs> is. He's our editing poobah. <laughs> and on all levels, of course. So I want to hear the funny story. What season was it and why did you come onto the show at the same time? Oh, well, I can tell you what happened. They did season one, which Steve was on, and there were two other uh, editors who worked on it. My ex-assistant, who I worked with for 
my whole career on ER and then many shows after that. She had worked on season one. And now she's assisting Jackie now on Bosch. Uh, Judy Guerrero is her name. And she called me between the two seasons of season one and two on, on Bosch. And she said, two of the editors aren't coming back on Bosch. She had been telling me how great it was to work on the show. She's just great people. And, you know, and low shooting ratios. <laughs> all that's all that's all that. She said, you know, they go home at 730, you know. Even though first seasons are always hard. Well, yeah. But so I called my agent and I told him and he said, okay, we'll get right on it, you know. And then, of course, I called Jackie because we've been friends for 20 years. And I said, there's two openings on Bosch. But I don't know anybody. You know, my agent is working on it. But you said, but Judy worked on it. But, but Judy worked on it. So Jackie, and I didn't know at the time how she did this, but all of a sudden she just sends an email to Eric Overmeyer, the head guy, personal email. And she's got an interview the next day. And uh, Jackie goes in and I'm, I'm, I call my agent. I said, uh, I, I just told a friend about this and she's already in for an interview. I'm not, I'm not going to get the job. So Jackie calls me that night, hired on the spot. I call my agent. I said, now there's only one opening on the show. Anyway, the agent got, the, got through and I went in the next day and they hired me on the spot. So that's how the two of us wandered in there. Then we had to, you know, deal with that third guy. <laughs> which turned out to be pretty good. We went to lunch one day before it all started and it was, uh, it's all been uh, downhill from there, uphill from there, whatever, whichever way you want to walk, but it's been, it's been good. I wasn't hired on the spot, by the way. Well, pretty um, much the same day. It was the same day. It was, yeah, it was the, the end same of the day. day. Yeah. Don't ruin a good story with the that's truth. Right. I mean, yes, that's right. <laughs> thank you, Steve. Thank you. It's, it's, it's all close. It's all very close. I went into the interview, I must say, I walked in and uh, Eric Overmeyer and uh, Peter Jan Brugger was, were the two people in the room and they both had gray hair and uh, uh, T-shirts and jeans. And I thought, I at least have a shot at this. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, how did you come up with this job? I was contacted by Dorian Harris, who I had worked with on another show. Dorian cut the pilot. So it's, it's not a particularly fascinating story. It's just a kind of a who you know story. And then I came in and, and like them, I interviewed with Peter Jan Brugge and Eric Overmeyer, who I instantly fell in love with. And I left the interview calling my agent saying, I got to do this show. Because <laughs> so, you didn't really want to do a show at that point. I was exhausted. The bridge kind of really took it out of me and I, was, I wasn't ready to go back. But after I met them, I very much was. You said that you got this by knowing somebody. And that always seems like a crappy way to hire somebody, but it's the best way, right? It's not necessarily, that is not a negative thing to get a job because you know somebody. It means that you have performed in a way that those other people that know you like you and want to work with you again. Well, and they're confident to recommend you. They're yeah, confident yeah. in your work enough to recommend you to their contacts. Every show I worked on, after ER ended, which was 2009, every job I had from then until I got Bosch was from somebody that I knew from ER, a producer, a writer. They had gone to other things. Bosch was the first show that I didn't know any of the uh, executives or any of the writers on that show. It is important who you know. It's part of what makes editing unique. It's such an intimate and personal <clears throat> thing what we do and it's so instinctive and so hard to define and the relationships with the other principals with the producers and the directors 
is so close. You know, you're sitting in a, in a small room with somebody, you see their flaws, they see your flaws. So a lot of the job is who am I willing to sit in a room with for an extended period of time? Can I tolerate them? Can I, can I, can I have fun with them? Do I respect the way they think? Because how many judgments do we make in the course of one scene, let alone a whole episode? You make, you know, thousands and thousands of choices all day long. And you have to be able to trust somebody that their choices are going to be good ones, even if you disagree with some of them. But you can't remake a thousand choices. I'm speaking from the perspective of a director or producer. So it's all about trust. And trust comes from interaction and, and it comes from references. But that doesn't mean you don't, you can't, you don't need to know things. You know, I mean, we all got this job because we were respected as, you know, we had a long list of credits and somebody believed that we knew what we were doing. So it's always a combination of what you know and who you know. The way you work with the people in the room has a, a huge uh, effect on, on all of this stuff. I mean, you have to know how to play the game to some degree. You're going to get these people come in, like Steve says, you've done all this stuff and you've watched every frame of this footage and they tell you they want this or that and you go in your head, well, that's never going to you know, work. But uh, you have to know how to, to attempt it. You have to try it. You have to try it. And you have to hope that the people that are on the other side are going to look at it and go, you know, yours was better. And you win some of those and you lose some of those. But I, I've seen editors who have gotten themselves in a lot of trouble by putting their back up when they get asked to do something. It's all a collaborative effort. We're all working on the same thing. You and, don't own it. You do not yeah. own the material. You just have to hope in the end that it's going to come out the way uh, you can live with it. And, and it usually does. I mean, if you, if you know how to do it right. I've, I've, I've sometimes even put stuff in that I, that I really, not on, not on Bosch. I used to do it on ER uh, once in a while because we'd have these trauma scenes and it was like, they could be cut a million ways. But I would make sure I, if I wanted to see the, the dagger or the guts or whatever, twice, I'd put it in there three times, knowing <laughs> they were going to say, I think it's just too much. The other thing you have to be is a translator yeah. because you can work with some directors who may be brilliant at directing, but they're not good at telling you what they want out of the scene in the cutting room. They're not good at communicating. So you have to learn how to read between the lines and figure out what is the kernel of what it is that they're trying to tell me. Yeah, yeah you, you have to be a good mind reader. Yeah, good and, mind and reader. Even because some directors know what they want but can't articulate it or exactly. can't operationalize it to say, I know what I want out of the scene, but I can't really tell you how to do it. And I can't admit that I can't tell you how to do it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you never get that clear. So I'll tell you what to statement. do, but it won't be the right thing. <laughs> and you have to, you know, this is a process of mind reading to go, okay, I think I know what you really want and give them that. So a lot of that relationship in the room, I mean, we all know this, is a big reason you get hired because you can navigate those relationships <clears throat> and help everybody to feel comfortable and everybody get what they want. Yeah, you want everyone leaving your room happy. That's why I've got chocolate on my desk because... <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, somebody clued me in on that years and years ago and had all this food in her cutting room. <laughs> <laughs> and we actually had a conversation about it, and that was why she did it. Oh, that's I, funny. I, it never occurred. You know, I'm not, that's more maybe a, I, I just, it would never occur to me. And, but I, I learned from that, and my cutting room's changed after that. We'll be back in a moment with more of my interview with Steve Cohen, Jackie DeBaron, and Kevin Casey. 
Today's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by FilmTools.com. Since 1996, FilmTools has been Hollywood's one-stop shop for all things production and post. No matter your filmmaking needs, FilmTools has you covered when you need gear for your next shoot or edit. This week, FilmTools is offering Art of the Cut listeners 10% off thousands of products when shopping on FilmTools.com. All you have to do is enter code AOTC10 at checkout. That's AOTC10 at checkout to get 10% off your purchase on FilmTools.com. So whether you need a GTEC hard drive or an Airy Sky panel, make sure to head over to FilmTools.com and check out with discount code AOTC10 to get 10% off your next equipment purchase. And now, back to my interview with Steve Cohen, Jackie Tabaron, and Kevin Casey. How you treat people and how people want to be with you in an editing room is crucial. No matter how good of an editor you are, what they're going to remember is how they felt when they were working with you. You're absolutely right. That's why I say, you know, make sure they leave your room happy. One of the great things that I find, I think the other two will agree on Bosch, is that our producers, they don't want to sit in the editing room all day. You know, they come in and they have their ideas and they give them to you and they trust us. They leave. They don't have to sit there and, and they know when they come back the next day or whatever it is, it's going to be what they want. That's the part that Steve was talking about. Trust, you know, they learn that they can trust you because you've treated them properly along the way. Other times you get these people that have to sit there and watch every three-frame trim they want to see. And that's when I get a little crazed. A little uppity. (laughs) Yeah. But that's the beauty of Eric. Eric Overmeyer has done so many wonderful projects and he knows the whole process so beautifully. You know, he yeah, knows yeah. exactly how something's going to turn turn out. Even if you get off track, he can bring you back on track in two seconds by saying three words. <laughs> it's amazing. And that's the beauty of working on a project like Bosch with producers and creators that have been doing this for 35, 40 years. It's wonderful. We, we, are, we are very blessed to have some extremely smart and creative producers and writers on the show. We have a, a, a really great, talented writing team and producing team yes we do and, and, they're, and they're 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 really good at what they do the actors yeah. are good too uh, the act the actors are amazing oh, it, it, yeah. titus Welliver is incredible madison Lynch is amazing too they're all good talk to me about the notes process having the right attitude towards them and being able to read the tea leaves about what the notes really mean yeah that's a great question too steve that's an yeah. editor question yeah yeah well, the, the very first thing is you cannot take it personally. Like I said earlier, you don't own it. You do the work on it and you can be proud of your choices and the way you're trying to tell the story. But in the end, it's not yours. It's the showrunner's point of view. And you can't take it personally if, if you missed that interpretation for that particular scene or whatever. I remember I had a scene that I did and I had gone in too soon into close-ups, but it was my very first season on Bosch. And we rarely use close-ups on this show. And I did. I felt horrible that I had done that because there were some very strange angles in the scene and I wasn't getting a lot of feedback from the director. But ultimately, I got to the place where it was a, a much better uh, interpretation of the scene by staying wider. 
and Eric just came in and, and said one or two words to me. And that just completely changed my whole perspective on that scene. He said, this is way more of a group endeavor than, you know, focusing and individualizing someone's too much. And that changed the whole, just by saying those few words, it changed my whole take on the way that I cut the scene. And he was so much happier, but I felt awful that I had disappointed him so much. When we first started on the show, those are the kind of things that can happen. You have your own coming out of whatever you've come out of, a different type of television show. But I think now, uh, or even after a couple of episodes, we got into the style. We knew what they really wanted. What happens in our show is Eric comes in and looks at it first. The, after the director is fit, the director, uh, he or she works there four days or whatever they need. And then we we run it just for Eric. Nobody else sees it yet. And he, he just runs it. And he only tells you to stop when he wants you to. And my assistant will be in there. We'll take the, she'll take the notes. It's always about the story, obviously. it's it's Very rarely is it about how we've cut something. I mean, once we got into the feeling of how the show kind of goes together. And then he, he's gone in, in an hour and then he just, he lets you do it. And it's very comfortable, you know, and after he's finished with it, which is only going to be one or two more little passes really. And then he sends it, we send it to all the producers and, and writers get to look at it. And then the note process becomes a little different. Uh, although most of it funnels through, through Eric. It's a very comfortable way. Obviously we've been on shows that have been anything but comfortable. Oh, but, where you but, get every you know. producer gets their own cut, every producer on this <laughs> and show. And then, then you've got notes, you know, from two different executive producers that are completely opposite. So That's well, notes. it's like, oh, my God. They'll say, oh, no, I'll talk to him about it. And then they never do. So when the other guy comes back in, he goes, why'd you do that? Well, he told me to do it. He said he told you. And then it's, that sure. doesn't happen on Bosch, which is nice. Yeah. This is just the nature of the job for editors <clears throat> is we all have egos, by definition, you have pride in your work. You have to. That's why you do it. Yeah, you show the work to somebody else, they're going to want to change it. You have to make your peace with that. I think part of it for me is also understanding that if you think in terms of a director, because we work with the directors first, it's hard for them in a different way. You know, you're, you're basically running a cut for a director and they're critiquing themselves when they're watching it. And they're, you know, worried that their work was inadequate in some way. And you think that it's all about you, and it's not. You're both kind of scared and thinking, you know, who's going to tell me that I screwed up here? Having some equanimity about that and just realizing, you know, some self-confidence and not getting too possessive about changes and too resistant, I think that's a challenge for all of us in one way or another. I don't think any editor fully escapes that challenge unless you're just so passive that you have no point of view. And from the perspective of the people you work with, they want you to have a point of view. How could you do the work if you didn't have a point of view? So you want to have a point of view, but you want to know when to stop beating a dead horse on that point of view and back away. And that's something you just learn over time. Everything has to do with your personality. You can't really get rid of your personality. You can't transform your personality. You come into this with who you are, with what your instincts are, with what your emotions are, with what your way of relating to people is, with how you approach the material. And for better or worse, it's who you are. I love the idea. And, I, and Steve, that's actually where I was trying to go with that question, which is when you're getting those notes, you have to realize that it's not about you. They're seeing their own work. Like if you're working with a director, he's not 
seeing bad edits. He's seeing direction or the story in a way that he doesn't want to see it. It's not, I don't think they're thinking, oh my gosh, this person doesn't know how to edit. They're just trying to get their point across. Sometimes they do. Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're seeing the shot that they caved in on and they didn't shoot and they, they're really missing that shot in the cut and they're wishing they'd gotten that shot because by the time they walk to their car at night, put their hand on the handle to open the door, they're hitting themselves in the head going, oh, why did I do that? So when well, every, see everybody cut, sees their own work. Come back. Yeah. All you do is see your own work. What we are focused on when we're really close to it is not the same thing as if you go back and look at a show years later. When you go back to it, you have that perspective. It's the story that you're watching and the, and the, and the characters. And if they work, the show works. You know? Right, and how it makes you feel. How you feel as you're watching it, if you want to keep watching. Mm-hmm. I was watching, I was watching uh, Bosch last night Actually, that one that, that, that you did, the uh, 404. Mm. And I thought, um, uh, I wonder why he did that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm watching it and, 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 you know, as an editor watching a show that, that, that you work on, and you realize I wasn't watching any, I was just taking it in. It was all working. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't looking at the editing. It was just all, everything is in the right place, you know, and, and that's what we look for. I, I was told way back by an editor I worked for as a, when I was an assistant, he said, if you keep this in mind, you, this will work for you. He says, always cut to what the audience wants to see yeah, just before they know they want to see it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I try to keep that in the back of my head. What are some of the things you three do to help your assistants move forward and get their spot in the editor's chair? Well, first of all, we want to engage the assistants and bring them into the process as much as possible. And what we're looking for, what I'm looking for in an assistant is somebody that I can do that with and feel comfortable with and feel that they can make a contribution to the picture that we're all working on the movie together. I've had assistants that were just technical And while that's great and it's helpful to have somebody who's really good technically, I really want somebody who I can reflect ideas on. And we all need to be working on the same movie together, not just sort of technically throwing files around. Who's your assistant, Steve? And like, what's something that they do for you that you appreciate or that makes them special to you? Well, my assistant is Rafi Noor. And um, I think he's terrific. He's very technical, which is fine. And I really, really value that. But more than that, he really understands story. And he offers me meaningful contributions in terms of story, structure, content. That's very valuable and very rare, frankly. Mm. Jack, what about you? Uh, who's your assistant and, and what do they do for you? How did you find them? What, what made you think that they would be a great assistant for you? My assistant is Judy Guerrero. She's great. Since I started cutting many years ago, I'm not that technical. And Judy is, so she does everything technical. She has a great story point of view. She's always present and involved with everything with the executive producers. She's incredible. I mean, she's been doing this for a very long time, and she's savvy and well-developed on all levels. Kevin, what about you? Who's your assistant? And, and uh, tell us a little bit about her, uh, her or him. 
Uh, my assistant is Kanar Katabjian, like all of our assistants, just just fantastic. Um, I rely on her very heavily for for everything. I mean, I like to keep her in, up on everything she's involved. Uh, she's very technically savvy, which is good because I'm not uh, overly technically savvy, and uh, she can you know keep me on the right path and all that st- all the technical stuff. She's great. She loves to be in the room, and I love to have her in the room whenever she can come in. And she's always in with the producers or director. She basically takes my notes. I don't really take notes unless it's a real specific thing that I I think of in my head that I want to make sure I don't forget. And then she likes to sit with me when I when I do the notes. I say, "What's the next note?" You know. And uh, although I I usually can remember, you know, what we just went through, of course. But but she's she's fantastic, and she she helps me a lot with obviously with the sound effects that we have to put in and the music. Do I recognize her name from the credits elsewhere in the credits, Kanar? Last season, she uh, was offered to uh, edit episode one from uh, from last season. Wow! They chose to uh, offer her an episode, and uh, that, I think that's great. I mean, Steve, you're you're, you're asking how do assistants make that transition, and part of it is finding ways to get the assistants to do creative work and get that be visible to the producers. That means editing scenes, cutting music, cutting sound effects, and for us also cutting the recaps that every season starts with a recap. I think that first cut is so small a part of the process when you're first assembling a scene and that the real, I mean, Steve's disagreeing, which is perfect. I love that. The process is so important. The, the understanding the notes and understanding how a scene develops from that first cut is critical to a, a young editor, an assistant editor moving up, I would think. Well, I, I, I kind of disagree. I, I, I think that the first cut, when I finish my cut, my first cut, that scene, at that moment, that scene is done. That scene can go on the air. I don't rough cut anything. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know what I mean. I, I, I want as few notes as possible, and we don't get a lot of notes. But I, I, I think if you really work hard on your cut, and you polish it, and and it, that should be the cut. You know, it, uh, that it, that's my my way of thinking. Maybe that's the ego part of it. I suppose. But no, I feel the same way. That the cut should be the cut. It should be very representative of. Well, with the best performances, the best of everything. With with the equipment we have now, what we can do, and we can polish it with sound and music and everything. And uh, I want it to be as something that I would show to anybody at that point. The reason I was reacting the way you you noticed, Steve, is of course the notes process is transformative and it has to be. And we all have to find our ways to be open with that. And we also have to feel that we've done the best job we can to start with. But there's a layer, looking at it from the perspective of a producer or director, there's a, no matter how many notes you get, there's a lot of stuff that can't change. Like I said, you've made 10,000 choices unconsciously to, in one scene. And you can't, it's very hard to uncut every cut and change every cut. And it's rare that that happens because it's too yeah. much work. They don't want that. Nobody could possibly want that. They want to know that in broad strokes, you've done something that they like. And then the notes are basic to, you know, something that's accomplishable in a reasonable amount of time. If you have to start over and remake every cut, you're, everybody's going to hate that. 
Did you guys have to hit time? We have a pretty big big window. I mean, uh, we've had shows that have been like 41 minutes and we've had shows that have been 59 minutes. We worry about length within a range, not within, you know, we've got to cut, we've got to shorten every shot to take a minute out of this episode. We never have to do that. And that's great. You know, we can let the material play as it needs to play. Does it change your first edit to know that you have that much flexibility? And the reason why I ask that is because I noticed that there were a couple of several scenes. I watched a couple episodes last night where it's kind of like people pulling into a driveway and sitting in their car that you may think, hey, that's shoe leather. But you also realize how important it is to the scene that the person's kind of preparing themselves for what they're about to encounter when they get out of the car. Well, it's, it's never about a time situation. That's what the scene requires or it doesn't. We've cut into some of that stuff often, you know. We do a lot of jump cuts in the show. Yeah, but but sometimes that has to has to be. The, you know, you have to show the whole thing. It's, it's what's Character leading, moment. Leading, leading into the next scene, you know. And other times we just jump it. Well, we don't do it for time. But on some shows you might, right? You might have to oh, yeah. say, I've yes. got to get yeah. seven minutes yeah. out of this. And the only way I do it is if the guy pulls up and gets out of his car. and Yeah, sometimes. That, and then it becomes the shoe leather that, that you're talking about. It usually becomes obvious, you know. When you decide to do a jump cut, since you brought up jump cuts, do you feel like that has to be something you've prepped an audience for early in the season or early in a show? Like I saw jump cuts as they pull stuff out of evidence bags. We do that all the time with, with stuff, you know, with, with uh, props and pieces of things. But, uh, but we've also just jumped right through wonders. I mean, yes. <laughs> like, well, I, 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 I think that? audiences are prepped for that kind of stuff now. If you do a jump cut right, you don't even feel. Yeah, you don't even see them if they're, if they're done right. I mean, I think our show, our show is actually much more opened up than most shows. We let things breathe much more, I think, than network television ever does. Oh, network television, you can have 10 cuts uh, with four words of dialogue. You can have 10 cuts. You're right. <laughs> so as an instructive question about the jump cutting in the scene that I was talking about, if there's no time constraints, what is the editing purpose? What is the story purpose of doing the jump cuts? If you could have him looking through these evidence bags for, you know, 10 minutes, why jump cut it so it all happens in 30 seconds? The point was... How interesting is it for him to go through item after item after item? It's all wasting time getting to the important stuff. That was the question of how do you sort of build a sense of tension without belaboring it, right? And frankly, I think it um, requires much more work to make those things look right. Than it yes, that's to, right. Just to run it. It's actually it, harder actually, to do it's, that. It's, it's yeah. very hard to cut that stuff, you know, and it's it's not really... It's, it's giving cuts. it a style. It, it's jump cuts, but it's but it's uh, every cut is a reason. You know? It's the classic, uh, I think it's a Mark Twain quote where he says, I would have written you a shorter letter, but I didn't have the time, right? right. <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> that's right. Perfect. Couldn't be said better. It's exactly right. Yeah, could not be said better. <laughs> well, on that lovely compliment to me, I will end this interview. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. Thank you all. Thank for, you, Steve. That Thank was, you very much. It was, uh, it was fun. It was great talking to all of you uh, and getting such fantastic wisdom from some really experienced, fantastic cutters. Thank you.
That's it for Art of the Cut this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for nearly 250 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guests, Steve Cohen, ACE, Jackie Tabaran, and Kevin Casey. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hullfish. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And finally, be sure to share them with a filmmaking or film-loving friend.